When we think of things we really love, we typically describe the loveliness or beauty or impressiveness of that thing. So if I told you about my favorite ice cream, I'd describe a specialty Tillamook ice cream I found a while ago. I don't even know if they still make it, but it was a coconut gelato um, ice cream with a ring of fudge all around the edge of the container and toasted coconut chips on top. If I told you about my love for Anley's flower garden, which many of you have seen, I would speak of the hundreds of varieties of flowers she has, the design and arrangements of the flower beds that she's imagined and implemented, and the brilliant color combinations in various seasons. In other words, in speaking of what we love, we speak of what draws us to the object, the loveliness of the object. But as you read through Scripture and you hear about God's love for His people, you notice that God doesn't sound like us speaking of ice cream or gardens or the various things we love. That is, the scriptures don't focus on the loveliness of the object, namely us. Rather, they focus on the wonder of God's steadfast love. The thing to be astounded and awed at is not our innate loveliness and attractiveness, but that God would show such love and compassion to people like us. And we see this clearly in the section of Psalm 103 before us today. Far from assuring us that all of these benefits of God that this psalm has been laying out as we've been going through it the last couple of weeks, far from assuring us that all these benefits of God to his people are due to us being quite lovely and worthy, it makes quite the opposite point. God loves us in part because we are finite, weak, needy, passing away. But what this does, and what it's meant to do, is make God's steadfast love and mercy all the more surprising and wonderful. It's not that, if you will, the ice cream is so wonderfully crafted or the garden so thoughtfully arranged, but that God is so loving in and of himself. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the first part of our text, the part we're going to spend most of our time on, point out a couple things as we go. Then we're going to take some time to unpack what it says and how it pushes back against our pride and causes us to boast in God alone. And then we'll end with the final verses. So we'll start at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, the word for is a transitional word. It transitions from what came previously. So David, the author, has been listing all of the benefits of God towards his people. And it's worth going back a bit to see some of these and see how this all connects. So beginning at verse 8, he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, note what the very next verse, which we just read, verse 14, doesn't say. 
It does not say, for he knows how lovely and valuable each one of us are and couldn't help but to make us his own. Or, for he is so thankful that each of us has determined just to be ourselves, to find our true inner self, because we are beautiful just as we are. No, for he remembers that we are dust. For he remembers that we are dust. This is a reference to Genesis and God forming humanity from the dust of the ground. We are created beings. He is the creator. We have not always existed. He has. Our bodies weaken and break down and die. He continues the same forever. And his steadfast love and compassion for us is due in part to this vast difference, to our lowliness and weakness and finiteness and creatureliness. And so we need to guard against any grand ideas that God loves us because we have something to offer to God, something that he needs. The glory and the wonder is all on his side that he loves us. When we speak of God's, when the Bible speaks of God's steadfast love for those who fear him, when we are told things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the expected response is not, well, of course, of course he would draw near to people like us. No, the expected response is, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. As our psalm goes on, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. God gives us a variety of images for understanding the length and enduring significance of our life. And they are not ones you typically find in self-help books. A breath, a passing shadow, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A flower of the field that the wind passes over and it's gone and its place knows it no more. God would have us view our life as fleeting he would have us number our days and remember that we get weak and break down and eventually die. He warns us about trying to grab hold of our lives as in a way if, as if we could control them and make them last forever. And, and this is said to be wise. We, we would be foolish to put our hope in our own life, in our longevity, in our accomplishments, our legacy. None of it lasts of course, earlier in life, we may feel invincible and eternal. We may feel like we can conquer the world and do anything. But pretty soon, our bodies begin to weaken. Opportunities begin to slip us by. Time starts to fly by, and we begin to think of death a bit more and realize that everything is a mist and a vapor. We can't grasp it and hold on to it. And if this were the end of the story, if this were all that God had for us, then it would be a quite depressing existence. And in fact, this is where many people are at. Many people get to this point, they come to grips with the fleeting nature of life and accomplishments and making a name for themselves and think that that's it, that that's the final word. You, you see this all over the place in song lyrics, in movies, in, in art. You see it as we numb ourselves and distract ourselves with things like alcohol and drugs and money and sex, or even things like family and sports and community. We try to forget that all is meaningless, in the words of Ecclesiastes. 
But this is not the end of the story. This is not all God gives us, and we need not despair. And we see this in the very next verse as it begins with, an, with another transitional word, but. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. While we would be foolish to hope in the strength and endurance of our own life and legacy, we would be wise to hope in the steadfast love of the Lord that is from everlasting to everlasting. We were made to hope not in ourselves, trust not in ourselves, but in God and his love for all who fear him and come to him. Charles Spurgeon comments on these verses. He says, blessed but, referring to that first word of verse 17, blessed but how vast the contrast between the fading flower and the everlasting God. How wonderful that his mercy should link our frailty with his eternity and make us everlasting too. As small and finite and weak as we may be, he is all-powerful and eternal. He is the one who rules over all, the creator, sustainer, and king of the universe. He's not dust. His days are not like grass. And in light of this, in light of who he is and who we are, we are meant to be compelled to come to him and trust in him and find our life and hope and comfort and joy and security and rest in him. There is no other security, no other comfort, no other hope, not wealth, not power, not worldly acclaim, not the best medical care in the world that might give you a little more time on this earth, not a spouse, not a family, not a dream home. He is the only security in this life for people like us that are dust. Now, that's what this passage says. But to unpack it a bit more, I want to ask two questions. First, who are we apart from his steadfast love? Second, who can hope and find comfort in his steadfast love? So first, who are we apart from his steadfast love? We've already looked at this a little bit, but let's dig into this a little bit more. Again, the Bible gives us metaphors such as dust and fading grass and mist and vapor. We are insufficient and incapable both to sustain our physical material life and legacy on this earth and incapable and insufficient to attain peace and eternal salvation with God. We don't have what we need within ourselves to do either of these things, to do what we need to do, but are absolutely dependent on God. And you need to know that it is at this very point that the message of the Bible the message of the gospel is often threatened and distorted in our world. And it's particularly dangerous because it contains some truth. What we are told from so many voices today is, you are enough. You are perfect, just as you are. And don't let anyone, including yourself, including the voices inside of your head, tell you otherwise. You, you hear this all over our culture, including from many quote-unquote Christian sources. Go look at the titles of books in the Christian bookstore. Or listen to some of the lyrics of Christian songs. Here's the thing. 
This sentiment creates people who trust not in the Lord, but in themselves. It does not create people who know that they are dust and know that their only hope in this life and the next is to cast themselves on the steadfast love of the Lord. This gospel, this message, takes some elements of the true gospel that in Christ and in his sacrificial death you are enough and uses them to teach us to rely not on Christ and what he's done for us, but on ourselves. But this is not just out there. It is our sinful tendency to be like those who built the Tower of Babel, saying, let us make a name for ourselves. Or like those in Psalm 73 who set their mouths against the heavens, against God, and say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? We want to be self-sufficient. We want to possess all that we need within ourselves. We want to be able to control and direct our own lives. And if we think of God at all, if we include God in this at all, we want to think of him merely as a means to getting what we want, merely as a help to help to, to us attaining our destiny, not as a sustainer of every second and breath of our lives. And this is really the basis of all of our sin, believing that we don't need God, but can take care of ourselves and attain to what we need on our own. And so as we read this psalm, as we read Psalm 103 and these just wonderful, elevated proclamations of God's love and mercy, we must be careful of the temptation to, to distort it merely as a kind of self-help. Well, God says I'm wonderful and valuable and sufficient just as I am. So I don't need anything. I don't need salvation. I don't need God. I don't need to come to God. I don't need to repent of sin. No, this is to rid the gospel of its very comfort and hope because it's to claim that there's no need for that comfort and hope in the first place. If you're sufficient just as you are, then Jesus died for no reason. If you're sufficient just as you are, then it doesn't matter what you think about God or how you act towards God, whether you live for the glory of God or for yourself. You can just use God to feel better about yourself when other things aren't working. Perhaps this seems like a subtle point to drive home, but you need to know that this distortion cuts at the very heart of the gospel. It makes us the center, not God. It makes God merely a means of getting what we want, feeling better about ourselves. And it's true. God helps you feel better about yourself. There is life abundantly and eternally in him. But he does it as he leads us to value and treasure and love him above all else, including ourselves. Here's what J.I. Packer had to say about this more than 60 years ago, showing that this is not something new to the world we live in. This has been going on for a while. He says, without realizing it, we have during the past century bartered that gospel, the, the real, the old gospel, for a substitute product which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is as a whole a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. Why? It fails to make men, this, this new gospel, it fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts. 
because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it, the new gospel, is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than is the new, but so to speak incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach people to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. And so as you listen to and hear and discern various messages out there, gospel messages being put forth as the gospel, here are some questions to consider. Does this message have the result of making you more or less dependent on God on a daily basis? Does it cause you to feel small and humble before God while at the same time comforted and safe and confident? This is good. Or does it cause God to feel small and containable and explainable merely at the service of your desires and your feelings? From another angle, does it cause you, does the gospel message that you are hearing cause you to be soft and tender and receptive to the input and exhortation of others because your hope is not in yourself? This is good. Or does it cause you to want to shut out anyone who might try to speak into your life? Now, to be clear, the point in saying all of this, the reason the Bible is so frank with us about our condition is not to tear us down and make us feel horrible about ourselves and just leave us there. It is to drive us to the only solid and secure foundation of hope, comfort, and strength. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. When his love is beheld, it is intended to lead us to a humble, thankful confidence, a sustaining confidence and joy. There is a smallness and weakness and dependency that we are meant to feel, that we in fact must feel if we are to draw near to God. And that ironically leads us to great confidence and strength and joy because our trust is not in ourselves but in him. John Calvin writes, the psalmist leaves nothing to men to rely upon but the mercy of God. For it would be egregious folly to seek a ground of confidence in themselves. After having shown the utter emptiness of men, he adds the seasonable consolation that although they have no intrinsic excellence, which does not vanish into smoke, yet God is an inexhaustible fountain of life to supply their wants. I was reminded of a passage in Jeremiah 17 this morning, which perhaps makes this point um, as clear as any other passage in the scripture. It says this, starting in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, 
whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land, not a picture of fruitfulness in life. However, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This reality of our condition is part of the reason we do a weekly confession. People have sometimes asked about this confession and um, asked if we really ought to focus so much on our neediness and weakness and dependency. Well, if that's all we did, then yes, that would be a problem. If we didn't follow that up by singing and proclaiming God's grace for sinners like us, people like, who are dust like us, then yes, that would be a problem. That would be imbalanced. But we need to push back against our sin and the spirit of our age that says we are sufficient and strong and enough on our own, apart from God. The Bible is clear that humility before God, dependence on God, is a good thing. And not only when we first come to Him salvation, but day by day. This is also part of the reason we take communion every week, which is as we do it, as a regular reminder of our desperate need for God's grace, that our sin required nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus. And yet at the same time, that God was willing and to plan and implement and go through with this plan and shed the blood of Jesus. Jesus was willing to go through this for us. And we need to remind ourselves of this regularly. And this leads to a second question. Who can hope in his steadfast love? And with this question, I'm directing your attention to the, the ends of many of these sentences as we've gone through Psalm 103. Toward those who fear him, those who fear him, those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Notice that there are, these are conditional statements. Not everyone can say he does not deal with me according to my sins, or as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards me. Not everyone gets to claim this. If this is speaking of, quote-unquote, those who fear him, specifically, then it's not speaking of everyone. And so we should be concerned to ask, how can I know that this is true of me? Who is this group of people that fear the Lord and thus have this hope? Well, first of all, notice that these are parallel phrases. These are mutually descriptive of one another. That is, those who fear God or those who keep it as covenant or those who remember to do his commandments. And we could add more descriptions. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All of these words describe the person who is rightly related to God, who, a person in the kingdom of God, loving, fearing, obeying, this is not someone who fears God but stays at a distance and doesn't love God. This is also not someone who claims to love God but doesn't obey God. This is not someone who obeys God's commands externally, appears to be very devoted and religious, but, but has no inward love and gratefulness to God. No, the person, the kind of person God is looking for and who, whom God himself creates through his spirit is someone who fears 
and loves and obeys and delights in and rejoices in and worships him alone. As we've been saying the last few weeks, we've been going through this, the, the, this fear of the Lord, the right fear of the Lord that Scripture speaks of, comes from seeing that God is creator and judge and not to be dismissed, but also from seeing that God is a good and gracious and kind and compassionate Savior and to be joyfully embraced for life. And those who fear him like this remember to do his commandments. They, they put their hope and trust not in their obedience and efforts, but they obey and remember to do his commandments as a response to who he is and what he's done. Those who have the hope of God's steadfast love, as you read through Scripture, those who fear him are not those who trust in themselves, but in God. Not those who trust in what they've done for God or have to offer God, but who trust in the Lord, as we just saw in Jeremiah 17. Namely, those who have the hope of these promises are those who see and embrace Jesus and the cross as God's once and eternal plan to remove our transgressions and our guilt, to satisfy his justice and righteous anger, and to keep us in his steadfast love from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus was God's plan to do this from before time began. And to rightly fear the Lord is to see what he has done in the person and work of Jesus and to embrace Jesus as our only hope in life and death. As we said last week, Jesus is the culminating display, proclamation of this character of God. And Jesus is the assurance that this character of God is the assurance of this character of God to all who come to him, to all who fear him. And having done this and having seen this, we are led to do what this psalm calls us to do. If you recall, this psalm starts by, with the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the psalm ends in the way it begins, with a renewed call to adore and praise the Lord. In light of all of his benefits and promises and attributes and ways, there is abundant reason to bless him. So final three verses. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And I just want to draw your attention to one thing in these verses. This psalm, like the rest of Scripture, directs our souls that is, our hearts, our minds, and all that we are, Godward. It is calling us to a God-centered way of living. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O soul, your greatest need is to bless the Lord. The calling of your life, your greatest purpose, is to bless the Lord, is to turn your eyes and your hearts to Him, to see who He is, and to live in light of who He is and what He's done by faith. As you behold and reflect on all his benefits and goodness, the purpose is not for you to wonder at yourself the, or even at his benefits, but ultimately to wonder at him. The purpose is for you to find yourself, yes, but ultimately to find yourself in him. The purpose is for you to find joy, but to find joy in and through him. The purpose is for you to be satisfied, yes, but to be satisfied in him. For your trust and hope 
and comfort and joy and rest to be securely positioned, placed on him. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray.